0: The Learning Hack is supported by a new spring, the platform that puts the learner first, shaping journeys that help individuals learn faster and perform better. Access intelligent technology, profound insights and a unique network of like-minded pioneers. And if you're a trainer or training provider looking to succeed in this fast-changing market, their free ebook will show you how putting the learner first is the key to winning. Download it now at newspring.com slash learnerfirst. That's anewspring.com slash first. Last November on the podcast, we talked to a climate scientist. That conversation banged home the point that we need to move away from hydrocarbons. But what about the people who extract, refine and market hydrocarbons? What are they doing to make the transition? We thought we'd ask one of them. This time, we're talking to Shell. Shell? Yeah. Welcome to The Learning Hack, a podcast about the people and technologies that are creating the future of learning. I'm John Helmer. And now, guess what? Learning is, cool. learning is cool. Learning is cool. Learning is cool. I'm learning. Learning is fun.
1: Knowledge is power. Knowledge.
0: Knowledge. Education. Mm-hmm. When it comes to learning, Shell is an organisation in transition. It's moving from a federated model of training to something more centralised. At the same time, it's bringing together L&D with Organisational Development, or OD, and Knowledge Management is moving closer to learning as well. And all this is happening against a background of a huge shift in skills needed within the organisation as it moves into more sustainable forms of energy alongside its traditional businesses. So we were really pleased to have the chance to talk to somebody intimately involved in this transition. Kate Fitzgerald, Head of Fact, tell us about our guest this time. Backfacts.
1: Jaap Hoogendorn is VP Learning Solutions at Shell. He leads a large globally dispersed team of learning professionals that partner with Shell businesses and functions. He's been with Shell since 2006 in a variety of roles based in the Netherlands, Dubai and Kazakhstan. Prior to joining Shell, he worked in strategy consulting.
0: So, Jay Curtis, Head of Themes. What themes did we cover
1: Upskilling and reskilling are still quite hot topics in workplace learning, John, and YARP had plenty to say on that subject, understandably. Shell has got a lot on its plate there with the green transition. But it's a multifaceted change programme YARP is involved in, with a number of threads. You also covered YARP's personal journey in learning. For someone in such
0: a high-powered position,
1: he was very personable.
0: There's a lot of pessimism about when it comes to the climate crisis. But we've seen a shift in recent years with the US throwing regulatory and financial heft behind the green transition and all sorts of people beginning to see that as a potential source of jobs and profit. The emphasis seems to be moving from cooperation to global competition. And whatever you think about that, perhaps it at least means people are taking the issues more seriously. A crucial question though is how committed the established energy providers really are to the change. One way of assessing that is to see them engaging with the huge structural issues such a change throws up for their businesses. And that's why I found this interview so fascinating. great to have you on the podcast. Welcome to The Learning
2: Hack. Thank you, John. Um, Before we start this discussion, I I would like to share the required disclosure, if I may. But uh, for today's conversation, I I am a Shell employee, but I'm not speaking on behalf of Shell today. So the views that I will express are, are my personal views and do not necessarily reflect those of Shell. So now that we have that out of the way, I can be uh, I can be more relaxed for today, and it's an absolute pleasure to be with you, and thank okay. you for hosting me.
0: Thanks for clarifying that. So Shell's a company in transition within a sector that's in transition, a transition that is having profound effects for the people function within your organisation. Uh, before we get into that, can we look slightly at the wider picture? What can you say about Shell's move to more sustainable forms of energy from the people point of view?
2: Great question to start with. Um, For me, one of the reasons that I joined Shell many years ago, uh, John, is that uh, I wanted to have an opportunity to make a difference um, for good in the lives of other people. And and if I take a macro-level view, um, there's still around 800 million people that um, lack access to electricity. There's hundreds of millions that don't have uh, a reliable supply. Um, And global trends such as urbanization still create the need for even more energy. So our challenge really is how will the world produce more cleaner energy to meet the requirements of that world? And at the same time, of course, recognizing that climate change for all of us as human beings remains uh, a serious concern. In Shell, we recognize that we must play a part there, purposefully, profitably, in helping make change happen. At the same time, we're a company that has quite a scale. Right, We have 120,000 employees and contractors. We operate in more than 70 countries. We have more than a million different customers, um, 32 million customers at thousands of retail stations every day. So I think it is navigating a ship. We have in our strategy very clearly said that I think we want to move into powering progress, providing more and cleaner uh, energy to the world. And to do that, we also need to continue operate our current businesses. And so from that, that angle, I see commitment, and it is pragmatic commitment. That's in a way the challenge also, John, for the rest of the conversation that motivates me to come back to, to work every day, how we can make that happen. And it gives me the energy to, um, to lead our fantastic learning team in Shell.
0: So could we talk a little bit about your personal background yeah? How did you come to be doing what you're doing and what was it that inspired you to, to choose this path?
2: That's great. Um, and it's probably both what and who. In this case, uh, I was reflecting on that uh, as you were talking, John. Um, I'm the son of two teachers, actually, funnily enough. Um, But I went to study economics uh, a long, long time ago. Um, And I still very much enjoy the simplicity of macroeconomics, supply-demand models, and numbers. But two things happened. The first one was that um, towards the second half of my studies, I had to do like many of us, uh, a bit of a business project. And mine happened to be with um, a large telco in the Netherlands at the time, which was a monopolist. uh, And uh, I had to study uh, how they operated their call center. It was a fascinating experience for me. Uh, There were a lot of different people working there in different shifts. It was an environment where there was a ticker on the wall measuring how long your conversation was with a particular client, and that was max, maxed out as in time. Reward wasn't very good. Managers that were running around there, I thought, weren't always the best and were often not listening to great ideas that the call center agents heard from the clients that were phoning. And yet, those folks, felt so passionate about that company that I just couldn't get it. I was looking at the way they were working and the passion for the company. And I thought, that doesn't gel. I I simply don't understand that. And when I don't understand something, I want to learn about it. So it actually drove me to a shift. I, I stopped economics as a study. I moved into a different direction, got a master's in organization development and change, and never looked back. And then the who, towards the end of that second uh, study, uh, close to getting my master's, I got in touch with a very senior OD professional who had a little OD and, um, and training boutique. Um, and he became my mentor. And when I completed my master's, that's the company I chose to work for because it offered me the opportunity to work with that person and learn from him. Um, and I did did it for working in OD, but I got the whole training angle as well. Um, and since then, basically, it helped me also sharpen my personal purpose, which for me is I just want to make, I want to leave the world a bit better than I found her. And, and I want to use education and systems thinking to help people and organizations become more effective and sustainable. Um, and that has made me get to where I am spending the last uh, 30 years in, in OD and um, and learning roles.
0: So we'll talk about a bit more about OD a bit later. But um, first of all, to start with the, the conversation that sparked this interview was about another transition that is happening within your part of Shell, which may or may not be closely aligned to the green transition. No doubt that'll come out in the answer. And that's the move from a federated view of learning to a more centralized one. Um, People will be aware that this happens within organizations. And cynical people say it happens on a seven-year cycle that they centralize, then federate. But um, uh, I'm sure it has specific drivers here. So what was the cause for for, for that move from uh, federated to centralized learning? And what was the problem that you were trying to solve with that really as an organization?
2: I love your point around circular circular view here, because I, I begin to get there as well, in a way. Um, but centralize, our centralization journey has really been a journey. Um, and we chose to do that quite slowly, step by step, step, coming from very decentralized to now almost completely centralized. And that journey... Slow, that the slow pace of that journey allowed us to be more pragmatic, move forward cautiously, protect and retain what was working well, and then transform what could give us the, the advantage that we felt is there to be had. If I just take you to the big steps of the journey very quickly, we started with learning super decentralized, often reporting into asset organizations, the line, the true business business. Then step two was that we left learning in the assets, but we brought the reporting line into local HR. So we started to get a bit more transparency on what was happening there. Then we implemented a federal federated model, basically by centralizing learning in the various businesses. And then 20 months ago, we centralized all of learning. What was the key driver 20 months ago? It really was business transformation. You may or may not remember it, but and it's hard to think about it today. But the oil price at the time was getting close to zero, um, and some of the trading was even going on below zero. We also saw the energy transition gaining speed, and we, as a company, needed to have a much stronger focus on performance. So. Shell sharpened its strategy, simplified its organization for execution of that strategy. And that, I'm a big believer in learning business back. For me, we support the performance of the business. So that set up the challenge for us. And more specifically on the people side, that was that we had more jobs than people, especially in our new energy businesses that are new businesses compared to our existing businesses. That was, So that was one, more jobs than people. The second challenge is that we need to be both serving new businesses, think about wind energy, solar, uh, carbon storage, sectoral, which require new skills, whilst at the same time, keep delivering the skills that we have been delivering for decades to our existing businesses. That was part two of the challenge. Part three was to do that, we want to work integrated across HR, because it's about getting the right person at the right time with the right skill in the right location and the right business. And that is not only a learning play, but also talent and resourcing. So we need to team up and that's much easier if you have a centralized learning function. And then the fourth part of our challenge was we need to be cost-effective very much 20 months ago, driven by the overall outlook of, of the industry and the company, yet remain business intimate and get and keep great learning people in learning to deliver all that. So that was in a way the key challenge for why we wanted to move to a centralized learning model
0: and i'm wondering slightly if the way that um, energy companies are organized organized had a, a, a part in this in 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 terms of the changes happening for instance people who don't know that much about the oil and gas business won't necessarily know that it, it tends to be divided into upstream and downstream you know you 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 kind of you have the oil rigs at the upstream end and you know the kind of exploration and getting the stuff out of the ground then the downstream stuff is more about sort of marketing uh service stations and 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 all the rest of it does that very true hold true when you get to a kind of sustainable business is it the same thing i mean i, I you know presumably you have production at one end and marketing at the other but does that involve a change of organizational shape?
2: The basic setup of the organization as you describe it still holds true. It's essentially the value chain from hydrocarbon molecule, and whether that is oil or gas, which is already a lot more clean to customers. On the customer end, indeed what you see as part of the energy transition is that we need to work much closer with our customers. So we almost need to work customer back, for example, to help local governments find solutions, new energy solutions for whole sectors. So on the customer interfacing part, That's where we do see changes happening because we need to enable, in a way, the delivery of value to our customers, bringing the whole production part with that, irrespective of what that is, what type of energy that is.
0: Can you give a kind of concrete example of that? I mean, is it just to be crude about it, it? Is it transition from people going to service stations and filling up their cars to uh, they have electric cars which are charged at the home hub or D- just give us an example of, of how that change works in being close to the customer.
2: I would say at the individual customer, at the level of an individual customer, that change is more limited because indeed in your in the example you gave with an electric car, you still need to charge it. And yes, whether you can, you can probably do that now at home versus always having to go to a service station. But I would say that change is relatively minor. But I think when it comes to, um, for example, helping helping whole industries if you go to Germany, where we have uh, Rhineland, which is one of our energy parks now, that very much supplies... The German industry with energy, which now also needs to be, in a way, much more decarbonized. That is where you begin to see that rather than going individually to one or two clients, we bring the whole portfolio of shell services to that client and actually help them think through how we can help decarbonize, difficult words, but... Make help them with their energy transition in how they produce, for example, cars. So that's where you begin to see the bigger change in the way we deliver our services and work, work with clients to understand their problems so we can then help solve their problems, much more so than in the past when we were simply providing energy. And that requires different skills as well, John. If you make the link to learning, Absolutely. because one of the one of the uh, one of the things that we see in terms of what are new skills that are required is a combination of technical skills, which we used to have a need for in the past. Shell remains is and remains a technical company, but we now need to also provide people with more commercial skills and ideally the combination. We need to have people that understand the technical part of the business, but also can explain how that for a customer can add value, commercial value, end-to-end in their production process, for example. That's really a completely new skill set that we need to skill up people on.
0: In terms of this larger change you're talking about with, with, within learning from, you know, being uh, federated to being centralized, are there developments in technology and learning technology specifically that have made this a more feasible option to do? I mean, you know, really, that's a question about the timing. Why the change now? Are you doing it because it's easier to do? Is, or is there anything within the way that technology is developed and learning technology that's made it more feasible to do
2: it now? I think that the timing is driven by the business in all honesty. So the the transformation and the challenges I described previously is what made us decide that the only way to deliver the the skills that Shell needs to execute its strategy can only be delivered by doing this centrally. Technology does help, though, um, and in particular if you think about some of the new skills technology, something that we are uh, that we are looking into, that will help us to be much more precise in seeing where we have specific skill gaps across the company at the granular level, in which location, in which uh, in which business, and then target those much more specifically through um for example, learning and knowledge in the flow of work. So that is an enabler, but it wouldn't be the biggest driver of the change for me.
0: Yeah. Okay. It, it, it's, it, it's interesting to have that clarification of which way around it was that really the, 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 the business is what's driving it. Does it help that you have things like um, skills taxonomies now? I mean, we kind of moved from competency matrices uh, a while ago to a point where everyone talks about skills taxonomies. It's that kind of stuff helping. Uh,
2: it's helping. And it's the space that I also need to understand a lot better. I'm, I'm in the middle of it at the moment, and we are in the middle of that. Um, and indeed, we come from a world where we talked competencies and where we have to assure competencies to make sure that we can run our businesses safely, in particular on the production side. Um, and what we are thinking through is how the increased focus on skills will impact that part in particular. Um, the skills philosophy in itself offers quite an opportunity, I believe, And I see that um, probably as learning professionals across the world, we're on a journey to to understand that better and also understand the technology, I think the the AI that is involved there on on how to get that prize.
0: I think in a very diplomatic way, you've given us a good sense of the you know the, the status of where that technology is. I mean, we talk about philosophy when we don't quite have the science yet, I think. Um, so, so that's a very interesting answer. The Learning Hack podcast is supported by Learning News, the learning sector's newswire. Rob and his team are good friends of the podcast and we really value the help and advice we've had from them and they do a great job the very latest news from around the learning sector, for interviews with learning leaders, the latest from learning sector vendors and features on workplace learning, go to learningnews.com. I said earlier that we were going to talk about organizational development, OD. Um, Part of your change has been to combine organizational development with L&D to kind of roll them in together. I think that's a very interesting move. Uh, and there are other interviews I have going with other organisations where they're, they're talking about little bits of convergence, well, not little bits, quite major bits of convergence like that. Uh, and I wonder if there's a trend here. So how and why did that present itself as a necessity to put OD together with L&D?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. And it's uh, It's one that I also am passionate about being, having worked on both sides, both OD and learning. So it, it's it's one that... Um, that I have passion with, um, and I think we moved early. We, we brought OD and learning together, uh, even a year or two before we went to a completely centralized learning model. And the key driver for that was again, business challenges. So we have talked a little bit about the, the different businesses of, of, of Shell, um, you summarized that very nicely, um, and we also saw these new businesses coming up in the uh, that 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 in a way are uh, positioned for the energy to help us in the energy transition. And when we were looking at how do we make our fair ver- variety of businesses really successful, we went back to the concept of or- organizational capability, i.e., what is what is a particular business uniquely positioned to do versus the market and the competition that they are operating in. And that's often only one or two, three things, right? We were looking into our deep water businesses at the time, and we felt that, for example, subsurface excellence, so how do you find carbons in a particular reservoir, is one of the key distinguishers there. So then the question becomes, how do you develop that sustainable, competitive advantage? And how do you sustain it over time? Um, And here we we think that you do that at three different levels. You do it at organizational levels. So you're going to look at, is my organizational structure aligned? And does it help create those two or three things that we really want to excel at as a business? Are the systems, the reward systems, the IT systems aligned? Are the processes aligned? Do we have the right number of people? So that's the whole organizational side. Then we look at, are the critical teams in that business also aligned to, to help develop that organizational capability? And are the leaders of those teams sufficiently Uh, positioned to lead their teams. And then finally, we look at what are the skills individuals in that business need to contribute to building that organizational capability. So org team leader and individual. And we felt that the only way to really drive that is to have an interface point with the business that can cover all those three levels. And hence we brought OD and learning together early on, a couple of years ago already. And we have been on a journey there as well, by the way.
0: Okay, so it sounds to me like you're moving towards my next question, that uh, the, the this relationship between organizational capability and skills and with competencies perhaps in the middle there somewhere is sort of the hinge which forms the relationship between the two. But to step back slightly, um, I'd like to know how how organisational development OD is conceived of and managed with, within Shell or has been historically. Um, and maybe you can help fill in a bit of my knowledge about, uh, lack of knowledge, I should say, about OD. I mean, if, if I sat down and thought about it, I could probably list a lot of the things that an L&D uh, department does. Um, I'm not sure I could do the same for an OD professional. <laughs> so can, what, what's <laughs> that, and what were the challenges in bringing it together with
2: L and D. Yeah, great question. And and in all honesty, I think what is OD and what is it not is the is as long as I have been an OD professional, a uh, discussion that surfaces at regular intervals. And it actually inter- surfaced in a meeting that I had last week. Again, when we were thinking about OD, um, so it's a great question. And for me, it basically is um, making an organization more effective by by helping that organization take a system lens to the the issues and the opportunities it faces. And then as an OD professional, embed the capability to do that structurally in the organization. So you can remove yourself again, that you almost make yourself superfluous as soon as possible as an OD professional. And if you then think about different Types of work. I mean, we we put um, in shell always. We put change management, so large scale change management, business transformation, and how do you embed the change and how do you design the program around that in it? Change management, culture and culture change, organization design, um, causal learning. We put in that as well. So those that that's my rough definition, John. If that helps. Um, I We can talk probably a long time about it, but um, let me move into the to the rest of the question. if That's okay with you, or do you want to talk? Go ahead. Do you want to talk the definition a bit more?
0: Uh, no, I think it it would be good to know what the challenges are in making challenges, that happen yeah. and bringing the two together. I, I will say though, and maybe you can answer this in in the rest of your answer. It does sound a bit top down.
2: Ah, that's maybe a definition of, that's maybe because of where I sit at the moment, indeed. That's a good observation. Um, and OD is generally bottom-up, I think, um, or effective OD interventions are designed often bottom-up. Um, if I look at the OD journey that we were on as well, um, OD, when I joined Shell 17 years ago, um, OD practitioners were basically very much distributed across the company. Some of them reporting in HR, some of them reporting into businesses. It was not very structured. Um, And we had many of them. And um, going back to our earlier definition, they were involved in all sorts of different types of interventions and work. As part of the, the shift 20, um, 20 months ago, again, we have made the final step in bringing those practitioners together. Right? Over time, we reduced the number of, of the in-house practitioners because, of course, we bring out bring in external practitioners where needed as well, but we've, re- we've reduced the number of in-house And then we have put them in a pool. And the key reason for that was one, it helps us to prioritize where we play our OD resources. It helps us to not allocate them away to all the businesses, but to keep them centrally because we can say, what are the big hairy problems that we face as a company where we feel we need to support leaders with OD, Advice and those are in the sphere that I described first. So it helps us to effectively deploy them of the big challenges that that the company is facing. It also helps us, and that's the second part in um, making the in-house OD pool more professional. So in making sure that we get the highest caliber of OD professionals that we can get so that the business truly gets that value.
0: Was there a challenge, though, in bringing those two cultures together,
2: OD and l <laughs> That's a brilliant question. I think, um, to a certain degree, there was a bit of overlap. Um, the key challenge, I think, in all honesty, is that... Um, OD professionals focus very much on complex problems. And the key challenge was to make sure, well, twofold. The key challenge was to make sure, one, that um, you don't create, in a way, role a, a role where the OD professional is feeling better than the learning person because they get to interface with more senior management. They get to contribute to the biggest strategic issues and learning folk who often deliver on a daily basis consistent consistently skills uh, throughout the organization. So I think it was for us important to not create two different groups or that was the biggest challenge how do you make sure that uh, od professionals don't feel that they are better than the learning folk the second challenge uh, ongoing challenge that we have is how can you truly have fo- have uh, practitioners that are both very fluent in od and very fluent in learning and i think that is because the combination isn't one that you know is a standard one Across the whole um, OD and learning industry, I would almost say. So, scaling up OD folk to understand how do you effectively grow skills and how do you effectively link skills to performance, but equally scaling up learning professionals to, for example, be comfortable in um, scoping and designing a team development journey for a leadership team, or do and deliver a a successful uh, piece of organization design. Those were the key challenges.
0: I think there's a thing here. uh, People are always talking about how L&D has to become more strategic as a function. you think part of that is possibly lies in this um, embracing of OD? I
2: think that could be a good one. Um, But I I always wonder what strategic really means, John, in all honesty. Right, strategic yes. is almost <laughs> the holy grail. Everyone wants to be strategic, and if I am, if I am truly honest, uh, where does that come from? It almost my, my I wonder. And often, folks that call themselves strategic are not in that type of strategic role. So I almost am inclined to be a bit more philosophic. I don't know if it is getting more into the OD space. In all honesty, I for me the biggest shift if you as a learning professional would want to become more strategic, is that you really move away from courses into performance. And that's one of the shifts we are also trying to to drive uh, in the the more centralized model, where we see uh, historically, I think many learning professionals were going around with a list of courses Have the conversation with the business. How many courses for who do you want next year? And then deliver that schedule. That, I think, is something that's disappearing. What you really need to do is understand the strategy of your business. What do do they want to achieve? And try to translate that in what are then the few critical skills that we really need to build for whom? And then go after doing that as simple Uh, and fast and effective as possible. And I think then I'm fine to call myself a strategic learning professional because then I impact, I really can demonstrate how I impact the value of and the performance of that business.
0: Can we talk specifically about reskilling because that's an area I understand where the green transition is a real driver for Shell, and that kind of makes sense. You know, getting oil out of the ground is one thing; um, making wind turbines turned around and and getting that into the grid is is perhaps a completely different set of skills. Could you share some innovative approaches or technologies your team has used in addressing the challenges there?
2: Yep. Reskilling, and reskilling has been with us now, of course, for for a few years. And I think quite early in our transformation journey, we understood that we will need new or different skills right, to to stand up and successfully run those businesses. And at the macro level, uh, to share one point, which I think listeners may find interesting as well, when we, at the organizational level, started to... Huh? sharpen strategy, simplify the organization, which drove everything we did in ODNL on our organization. We also looked at behaviors and we identified learner mindset as one of sort of the core people capabilities that we want to foster across the company. And in particular, the last two years, we've really focused on developing that core capability across all our workforce. And that helps us then also, when it comes to reskilling, we have um, two examples. Let me give you two examples on reskilling and how we do it. The first one is very much in, in our IT organization, or we nowadays call it IDT. We added the D of digital to that. And that, in a way, summarizes the need for reskilling there because we have seen an increased demand for, for example, data scientists um, and our rescaling approach, we use a lot of technology in our learning, right? For upscaling purposes, but on rescaling IT professionals, finance professionals to become data scientists, we actually went back to basics. We designed a program that in six months, through very focused learning interventions. And I would say that's one of the distinguishing factors. Personal attention of mentors uh, and coaches reskills people to become a data scientist. And the key learning there is that um, intake is important. So it's about motivation and it's about getting the right person. Selected for that quite intense six months of training and development. And then it is very much around making sure that the business, in this case the IDT organization, takes ownership of them and provides them with a role that they can play when they are reskilled. Really so those are the, the two key lessons there. Nothing to do with new technology but with old-school learning, motivation, getting the right person, embedding them in the line organization who needs to take ownership of securing them a role. And that is something we are extrapolating into other areas where we need to reskill at scale. Uh, And funny anecdote is, it's something I'm pretty proud of, actually, that um, last last year, we've actually... um, Taken a group of refugees that are in the Netherlands in this case um, onto a summer camp where we offered them an opportunity to also reskill themselves to then get a job in our IDT organization. So that's one example. The other example goes a bit more into energy transition. So into how do we create skills for our new organization, a new for our new Businesses, I should say. Mm. And um, here is where we basically decided to not focus on specific skills in a particular business, but we've actually decided to provide an opportunity for everyone across Shell to start reskilling themselves. And we felt that you really need to do that by creating awareness and then a thorough understanding of specific areas in the energy transition. Decarbonization, for example, nature-based solutions, wind and what it is and what hydrogen, those type of areas. And we did that basically um, through a very simple piece of new technology, which uh, helped us curate a newsletter of all things mm. um, bringing external content to readers who were submitting their preferences uh, up front. And then based on the clicks, etc., people got more and more relevant content to them. So that, that's a, a simple example where we leverage some new technology to lay the foundation for reskilling uh, into our energy transition oh, business.
0: Sounds personally like knowledge management, <laughs> I have to say
2: we do a lot of knowledge management as well there yeah
0: yeah so uh, other other people i'm talking to um, in the upcoming schedule we're talking about bringing lnd together with knowledge management so that it, it's very interesting that, that there is that kind of convergence going on
2: we have knowledge management in learning and development as well john we, we didn't talk about this yet but mm-hmm. actually our knowledge management with our centralized model we've also really brought our knowledge management into learning and development because I think that the prize there is it's about knowledge and skills, right, at the right moment. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm looking forward to listening to that conversation myself. Then,
0: yeah. so coming back to the to the beginning of your answer to that question, I thought that was such an interesting answer because this the whole debate about skills and reskilling just so often seems to get very granular, you know. Um, and possibly that's you know it's it's about kind of how do we turn a you know a marketing exec into a coder or whatever uh and i think possibly that's because it's tends to be driven by the vendor community i, do, I don't know might be a bit unfair in that but it was so interesting that you uh, your your answer was so meta it, it was kind of like we we have to, we teach people to learn how to learn new things and it has to do with hiring as well that you have to get people who are we're good learners. So, I mean, I'm not well, trying to that, put it in your mouth there. I'm
2: no, but that's sense. very true. I was also, uh, I was almost taken aback a bit by the simplicity of it, because I was also expecting we would have to do many different new things. But actually, mm-hmm. it I, we found through experience that that was so going back to basics almost.
0: Yeah. So what's the current state of play with the transition from federated to more centralized learning? Um, and can you say yet uh, how the initiatives have contributed to the overall growth and competitiveness of your organization? is it early days?
2: Um, 20 months in, and in all honesty, I am cautiously optimistic. Um, we are beginning to see some real benefits. So for example, we have been able to now clearly define a learning strategy. So, so what's our view of where we are going with learning in a couple of years? And that has then enabled us to also for the first time really define what's the um, roadmap, the technology roadmap, we talked a bit about technology early, earlier, enable that strategy think about that skills technology and piloting that etc so that's a great benefit Um, we've also identified a number of different projects to in a way improve the way we are delivering learning at the moment because of course no surprise and yet a surprise for me (laughs) in all honesty if you bring a federated model together, you all of a sudden begin to look under the hood, and you see that there are a thousand different flowers that are blooming in terms of the different approaches that you have to certain to, to certain learning challenges. So to make that as to make the machine learn as smooth, smooth as possible, we have a number of these projects defined. Some of them are complete, others are running. Um, but I'd be fib- fibbing in all honesty if I said everything is green what I, what I what I've learned is that this is not a 20 month journey it's probably a 3 to 5 year journey to get really the benefits and the impact out that we want to achieve
0: is there a worry there yep that perhaps when you bring the federated organization together you see that a thousand flowers have been blooming yes and um, your your potentially killing the uh you know the the, the the kind of the mulch and the organization of the gardens that allowed those flowers to bloom, aren't you, by um and you turn it all into kind of astroturf? Is that a worry?
2: <laughs> it is absolutely I don't know if it's it's not a worry for me, but it's something that we need to keep um uneasy about ongoingly. So I want to keep a bit of chronic unease on remaining business intimate and working business back. Because I think that, to your question, is where you're going. You may be losing that bit. You may standardize so much that you lose the re- touch with the business. Um, and that's what I keep telling my folks every day team, work business back. Understand the problems, understand the solutions, and understand that standardization is great, but it's not—it's a a means to an end, it's not the objective. So we standardize where we can, for example, on this one, but we always make sure that it is fit fit for purpose as well. Um, And especially in our case, right, with such different businesses, in some businesses, I need to deliver something in our renewables business that we are growing, I need to deliver something, but I need to deliver it really fast. I need to do it very quick because that business is developing quickly. Does it always need to be perfect content, etc.? No, it doesn't. As long as I deliver something fast, I'm good. But if I go to our more traditional businesses, such as, for example, Wells, which is where we need to drill for hydrocarbons safely and securely, and ensuring that whatever we do there is, is safe for a very, very long time, then I'm okay to go a bit slower on the speed side, but I need to make sure that whatever we do there is really thorough. Um, and that bit, so the 10 holding the tension around that, that's I think where I keep being uneasy. Make sense?
0: yes i think that really sums up the complexity that you're having to deal with in the transitions that we've been talking about brings it all neatly back together i think so lastly if people want to follow this story and your own thoughts and work where should they go and if i can have two questions for the price of one here the other side of that is what are the places and sources that you look to in our industry and perhaps outside it for ideas and inspiration?
2: (laughs) Yeah, among all the questions you've asked so far, this is one of the most thought-provoking for me, in all honesty. Um, Over the years, I think as a company, we've been a lot more insular, more focused on solving our own problems, innovating in-house as a learning function, right? And I've been doing that in a way the last 20 months as well, because there was so much to do. Uh, two things have changed. One, some of the problems like skills, learning in the flow of work, leveraging AI are much hairier than the problems we've solved in the past. They are industry agnostic. And I feel that we, as a, as a learning function, can really benefit from sharing and learning with peer organizations, both in the same industry and uh, and outside in particular. Um, so we go out... And that's one of the reasons why I also join you to uh, today to hear uh, also from listeners' ideas and experiences. Mm-hmm. The second chance is the second change is the realization that we have many lessons learned through running a mature learning function for a rather large corporation, and I feel we owe it to the broader learning community to share our lessons learned, um, which is something we are now really actively going to do both. On the podcast, but also by attending various conferences, etc., over the coming 12 to 18 months. So, I think with those shifts, hopefully, you'll see us more actively participating in in professional sharing of issues and solutions and experiences. Um, and maybe even more regular appearance on uh, on your show, John.
0: Who knows? <laughs> Thanks very much. Um, I have to say, I it's been a real eye opener for me. I I worked with an oil and gas training company a while ago as a client. Um, and I found it really interesting, but it, it it was strange in a way how shut off that sector is. Uh, and I found it with various other kind of sectors where I've consulted and so on, um, you know, shipping uh, Mm. is a world in its own shipping, training, maritime training. But I get the sense that there is much more convergence that people within those, um, sectors which are at at, at the same time niche and huge um are more interested to know what's going on in the 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 mainstream of uh of of debate and knowledge um and you know perhaps technology is playing a role in that but thank you very much for um unpacking that for us today and giving us such um such thoughtful answers thank you very much
2: thank you for having me john true pleasure
1: that's all on the Learning Hack podcast for this time. Many thanks to our guests and to our sponsors. The Learning Hack is completely independent and transparently funded by sponsorship and your Patreon contributions. If you want to help others find us, please like, follow, rate, review and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice or on YouTube. And you can contribute at patreon.com forward slash learning
0: Till next time.
1: Stay curious, learning people.
2: I finally get it.